Okay, if you were here yesterday, uh, then you got kind of the introductory thought to what I want to continue today. If you weren't here, that's fine. I'm going to catch you up really fast. Uh, we made some mistakes in human history. That's the short version of it, okay? That somewhere along the line, and I don't mean uh, five years ago or ten years ago, but more like 50 years ago. Um, sorry? Okay. Uh, about 50 years ago, uh, not, but more like 500 years ago, uh, we made some decisions in human history and Western civilization to change the way humans order culture in our lives. And the results have not been grand. Okay? So what I'm going to suggest today, that one of the things the church has to do to reclaim the, the things we left behind is to start asserting some ancient ideals, uh, some medieval ideals almost, that the church kind of needs to reclaim that we've forgotten about. And by doing those things, uh, we're going to have an opportunity to help reshape the culture in a helpful way. So the proposal is simply this. The church can reclaim and redeem the culture by faithfully maintaining and kindly asserting the forgotten principles of the pre-secular age. Okay? By hanging on to some ideas that some people are going to find old-fashioned, and again, I don't mean 50 years old, I mean 500 years old, to, to, by going back to some ideas we've left behind in some critical areas, we're going to have an opportunity to shape the way our culture views these areas. And there's four in particular I want to talk about this morning, so much as time permits. Uh, after I was looking at my lesson later, it occurred to me that Probably any one of these, Scott, could have been a 45-minute talk by itself, but I'll do all four. What, what, what could go wrong? Uh, we're going to talk about four areas where I think human civilization today, Western culture, um, has forgotten some important things that Christians used to know. I'm not sure Christians still know them, okay? And so I want to make sure Christians know them, and then we're going to be the witness to that in our culture. Four things we need to know. We need to talk about what it means to be human. We need to talk about time and what does time mean. We need to talk about marriage and we need to talk about death. Those are four that I picked. I could have picked ten more, but it's a good place to start. If we can get those right, we'll be in good shape. What does the modern person think about man? What does a modern person think about a human? Uh, in the modern world, humans, we think of ourselves as kind of meat robots, I don't know if that's a picture you've ever had in your head, but that's kind of what we are. We've got this uh, meat, we've got this muscle and stuff, but somewhere drifting off, you know, there is this invisible person that is Ben, and he just kind of controls this body that I happen to be in, right? And so I'm, I'm meat, and I've got uh, machinery and stuff in here that needs to work. That's about all they are. Another thing humans think about themselves, we tend to think of ourselves as brains and vats. That what I really am, I'm a thinking thing. This, uh, Todd talked about this yesterday from Descartes. Uh, he said humans are incogitans. We are the, the thinking thing, the thing that thinks. And that there is uh, a mind, and that's what you really are, is just a mind. And this body that you're in just happens to be there, right? And so you decide what you want to be. Because you're not this body, you're something else, Okay. That's the way modern man tends to think of himself. We're very much interested in our brains and our thinking. Uh, we also think of ourselves as very individual. 
Uh, so we're concerned about the, the individual person and who you are. You have a personal relationship with God if you're religious. Uh, you have a, a vote in your government. It's a democracy. It's a very individual decision. You, you the person, are the most important thing to you in modern society. More than, say, the family or the society as a whole or the culture or a generation. It's the individual. Uh, humans think, and I, I can't find a better word for this, but let me just kind of talk about it. Humans think of themselves as, as buffered. And what I mean by that, um, there's some space in the way we think about ourselves between us and the rest of the world. There's a little buffer there. And you, you are separated from other influences. 500 years ago, people would have gone to bed and said a prayer that God would protect them through the night from evil influences. Okay? The modern man doesn't worry about that so much because I exist kind of in my own little space and I'm not too worried about anything getting to me. There aren't any dark influences in the world and there aren't any of those. See, we think differently. We think of ourselves as kind of isolated in space. In fact, we really don't think of ourselves as connected to God. That I, I am the individual, I live in the universe, the universe is a dark, scary, cold place, and I'm just here. And above all else, the third point there, I'm free. Freedom is the most important value of modern culture. That's the one. If you, if you want to you run for office, right, you better have freedom in your slogan somewhere, right? We're going to be free. That's what Americans believe in. Freedom is important. Back to that individual. I, the individual, exist. I have freedom and rights to do and to make decisions as I please. That's what I am. That's the most important thing about me. Um, anybody know this little poem? This comes from Invictus by William Ernst Henley. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the way the modern man thinks of himself. Does that make sense? The modern man thinks of himself as the master and commander of his own ship. I'm at the helm and I am in control. And it doesn't matter the punishments, the scroll, right? You may have some sacred literature that says there's right and wrong and there's consequences for what I choose, but I'm the captain of my fate. I love that poem. When I hear it, my blood starts boiling. I think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go master the universe and I'm going to go start a business and do whatever I want to do with my life. It's, it just really pulls to the modern mind. The, the catch is almost everything in that poem is not true. Right? I mean, it sounds great. It's just none of it's true. You're not the captain of anything, right? I mean, that's, that's important. And that shift in how we think about ourselves, which I think the Bible would most adequately describe as humility, and how the human thinks about themselves, is a big difference in how the church thinks about the individual person. And we're going to have to start embracing that. What does the, the Bible tell us? How, how do we redeem the idea of being human? What does the Bible tell us about being human? Let me give you just two passages to think about. I want to start, I want to read to you Psalm, the eighth chapter. It's very brief, but it's worth reading in its entirety. A lot of songs come out of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's a very different view of humanity in that passage. How does that passage imagine humans? What is a human? A human exists in a world of God. Not not buffered, not separated out individually. You exist in a cosmos that God made and rules over. You are one part, and not even a particularly important part, if you just stared at it a while, right? That if you look at sun, moon, and stars, you don't say, wow, I'm fantastic. No, that's the wrong response. The psalmist says, Why did you bother with me if you can make all of this? Right? It's a very different view of humanity. What does man have going for him? Only that God has bestowed on him glory. And bestowed on him strength and honor. That's it. It's nothing. I'm not the captain of my ship that has made my own way in the world. God has given me a way in the world. God has given me work to do. And that's the only reason I have any of it. So it's a very different view of what a human is. Um, We exist in the cosmos of God. We are in his world. And we look around and we're just glad to be here. That's a different view. Uh, what, What is a human being? The creation story of Genesis exists in your Bible to tell you who and what you are. That's why you're supposed to read it sometimes, right? It tells you who and what you are. Think about, the, and I'll just summarize this. I'm going to hope that a room full of folks in Bible class have maybe at some point read Genesis 1 and 2. If you haven't, that's your homework tonight. Go home and read Genesis 1 and 2. But let me just mention a few things that come up in, you didn't know you get homework out of this, did you? Yeah, sure enough. Tell you some things that come up in the Genesis account that are obvious in the Genesis account, but in our culture may or may not be things we think about as true anymore. Uh, Man is a created being. In our culture, man is a byproduct of the universe. And as a byproduct of the universe, you owe nothing to anyone. But if someone bothered to make you, you have a responsibility of relationship to that being. You are not the most important being in the universe. The world doesn't revolve around you. Someone was here first. See, So man is a created being. Number two, man is an image bearer. You are not the result of a brute chance in the universe, but rather you were made to have the glory of God. You know, Christians have done a lot of bad things through church, throughout human history. Christians have not always been on the right side of every argument. I'll just be honest, that's true. But it is worth mentioning that whenever you see people liberated from slavery or oppression, you find some Christians leading the charge in that debate because they said the human person has value and worth and meaning. They bear the image of God. The old, uh, we turned it into a Christmas song. The slave, he is our brother. 
Right? That line was worked into that hymn that you look at the other person and say, that's a human bearing the image of God. How dare we treat them any differently? See the sentiment there? That comes from an idea of humanity that doesn't exist without the Christian worldview. Man is a gendered being. It's, I try not to be shocked by our culture, but it is strange to me, uh, surpassingly strange, that I have to tell people they have gender. I mean, you think about that, but it's one of the things the Bible just simply asserts. In the beginning, he made them male and female. That's one of the things he did. That you have a physiological gender. Okay? Now, if you're a brain in the vat, if your body just happens to be what attached to the meat robot, then if you want to be a different gender, why not? You see, in the modern worldview of man, that makes sense. If your mind, which is what you really are, they would say, feels like a woman and your body looks like a man, well, change that. What's that matter, you see? Because I'm just a brain in a vat. The body is irrelevant. But if, in fact, I am a created being with actual form, then there is a reality, a biological reality to who and what I am. And that apparently matters. That it matters to be a woman and it matters to be a man. That it means something about who and what I am and what I'm here to do. And that is a very different view of being human than is currently at work in our culture. The fact that we could forget something that is normally kind of obvious demonstrates how much we've forgotten about what it means to be human. And then finally, man is a material and living being. Back to that I'm a brain and a jar kind of thing. Um, God made us from dust and clay and shaped us materially. I am more than a body, but I'm not less than a body. This, this meat robot, <laughs> this person in front of you, that is who I am. What I do with and to my body matters. Because God made that, and that's part of who I am. And to demonstrate how important it was, he has promised to raise up my body in the last day. Not just a wispy Casper ghost floating, uh, floating through the universe for all eternity, but he's going to raise me up from the grave just like he did his own son on the third day. Because that body matters. He's made me to be a being in a body. So all of this kind of helps reshape how we think about what it means to be human. What about time? How does the modern world think about time and how can we change that? The modern world, especially in the American modern world, thinks of time as a tool for productivity. Finish the sentence. Time is money, right? You know that one, okay? People may not know their Bibles, but they know that one, right? I mean, that's... that's that is a, a proverb ingrained into our culture, right? Time is money. Time exists to be productive and fruitful with. You need to get the most out of your time. You go to the bookstore and one of the biggest uh, shelves in the bookstore is going to be about how to effectively use time. And what they mean by that is how to be more resourceful and how to get more out of every minute of the day. Uh, I, t I work a lot with young families at our church. Uh, we have a large young families group. And it's interesting when you ask people, how are you doing? Like that's the, the generic preacher question, right? How are you doing today? Okay. You ask uh, an older person, and I'll let you decide who you are. You ask an older person, and they will tell you about their health. 
They will tell you how they're feeling. You ask a young parent, their response is always the same. We are so busy. That is the universal answer. How you doing? Oh, busy. Got a lot going on. And in fact, people are embarrassed if that's not the answer. No young parent wants to tell me, you know, we've got nothing going on right now. We sit around the house. We go on nature hikes. We do nothing, right? Nobody tells me that. They always give me the litany of things they're involved in as the measure of the success of their life. Time is designed for productivity in the modern world. Uh, we measure time by events of national significance. We, we know that we're supposed to keep track of time. And so we have important dates in the calendar. Some of the dates in the calendar, you're familiar with the word vestigial? Um, in ev evolution, there's a term called vestigial organs. It's the organs you have, but you don't know why you have them, right? That, that they're kind of, why do we have that for? On the calendar, we have vestigial holidays. We have uh, holidays that exist, and we don't remember why they're there, right? <laughs> we, have, we have some things that look like religious holidays, right? I mean, Christmas has the word mass in it, so, and Christ. It seems like it's religious, but, eh, whatever, right? And we have things on the calendar that kind of look like they were religious once, but by and large, um, St. Valentine was beheaded, but hey, we'll give a Hallmark card on that occasion. That sounds good. Uh, you know, everything, it sounds religious, but what's, what's, it's, it's become, you know, a, a part of our just measuring time. Uh, we have events of national significance, Veterans Day and Memorial Day and Fourth of July and things. You know, we have events like that. Um, we keep track of time uh, in terms of money. You have a fiscal year. If you're going to school or when you're one of those brave souls that teach in school, then you have a school year, right? And that's how we think about time. There are big events, but you think about time based on what's important to you. The school year, the fiscal year. The work year. That, that's how you measure time. Uh, we think of time as being very linear. We're just moving ahead in time. I was born. I'm going to die. I'm getting from here to there. And that's how we view time. Now, some of you are saying, well, what else is there? Is it an alternative? I want to suggest to you that's not the way ancient people viewed time. Not even the way they viewed time in the Bible. First of all, and again, I won't make a turn to Genesis 1 again, but it's worth mentioning that in Scripture, time is created and ordered by God. He created the sun, moon, and stars for signs and for seasons to make sense of time for us. That time and its passage was supposed to have significance, which is why all humans throughout human history have kept track of time in a million different ways, lunar calendars and solar calendars. Uh, my background's in astronomy, if you haven't guessed. Uh, I love looking at this stuff. It's very fascinating. All right, we've always kind of kept track of where are we at in the year and what's going on. Um, it's surprisingly common to have a seven-day week. Has that ever bothered you, by the way? I mean, you talk about something that has no significance whatsoever, unless it does. Right? Why a seven-day week? And yet most cultures have adopted a seven-day week. That's a good way of keeping track of time, right? Um, that's kind of significant. Um, throughout the Bible, the prophets assert that God orders time. And continues to. It's not just a clock he wound up and said, there you go, humans, enjoy. But rather, he still is making sense of time for us. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. This is in the great dream interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar has had the dream. Daniel's interpreting the dream. And Daniel says, he, speaking of God, changes times and seasons. 
He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. How does Daniel think of time? It's not just a clock that God wound up and said, well, there it goes. It's going to roll on until it runs out. But he says, no, God is still ordering time. God is still bringing us the seasons. God is still making use of how we live and move and have our being. Time has a spiritual function. So in the book of Ephesians, in a letter to a church, what kind of things do you talk about to a church? Spiritual things, right? Important things, valuable things. And then Paul says in chapter 5, verse 16, redeeming the time for the days are evil. What does that mean? How do you redeem time? And yes, if you're wondering, it's the same Greek term used everywhere else in your New Testament for redemption. How do you buy back and redeem time? That's a weird way of thinking of it. But that's how Paul's... Now, interesting, the ESV, I, I love the ESV. I preach out of the ESV. But in this particular passage, the ESV thinks like a modern person. So they've translated this, make the best use of time. You see, that's how the modern person thinks of time. How do you make the best use of time? Well, I've got a time chart and I've got a calendar and I'm going to make sure I take my five-minute break but not a ten-minute break and I'm going to go and do it. Right, I've got a schedule, I'll go to the gym and i got all that. What, I don't go to the gym, you can tell that. But the point is, all that you think of time in that way. What if that's not what Paul meant? What if he's trying to say, make sure time keeps its significance. Redeem the time for the days are evil. That time belongs first and foremost to God. And that we need heavenly wisdom to do something with our life. Psalm 90 and verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We need God to show us what to do with time. And it's not just about being productive. There's a rhythm to life, a routine. Ancient Christians, now I'm not necessarily asking you to go back and be one of these, but I think they were smart for what it's worth. Ancient Christians measured time based on the life of Christ. They didn't know all the details of the life of Christ. They didn't know, believe it or not, they didn't know his birthday. Uh, That's all things that they just kind of had to make up as they went. But they tried really hard to have the life of Christ play out in each calendar year. So their year started around the birth, a time they designated to celebrate the birth of Christ in December. And then they would have a calendar where the preacher was supposed to preach through the life of Christ through the year. So the first six months of the calendar was the life of Christ. You talked about his temptations. You talked about his suffering. A week before Easter, you talked about his death. And then you talked about his resurrection. And then you, 50 days after that, you talked about Pentecost. And then the last half of the year, you studied the rest of the Bible and learned about how to be the church. Now that, and then the year came back around. You know what they did again? They went back and started about the life of Christ. Every year, you started your year talking about, this is the life of Christ. How are we going to be like Christ this year? And you did that as your routine. Every year. Preacher would come back to the same texts and say, let's start again with the life of Christ. Only this time, we'll do it out of Matthew instead of Luke. Right. And it's a beautiful way of ordering life. You're going to order it anyway. Why not measure it off of the life of Christ rather than the fiscal calendar or when your reports are due? Why not think of it as, what was Christ doing in an amount of time like this? 
Lent's coming up in Churches of Christ. We're not Lent people. It's not our thing. Okay, But in the old Christian calendar, they kept Lent. And why did they keep Lent? Again, it's kind of strange to us because that's not our thing. But it's a 40-day celebration. What happened in the life of Christ that was 40 days long? Time in the wilderness. He was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. So the ancient Christians that kind of invented Lent were thinking... This would be an opportunity to remember the 40 days in the wilderness and to think about temptation, sin, and repentance. And so the preacher preached on repentance for 40 days, right? And, and talked about the things you need to give up and stop sinning and things like that. So again, I'm not saying you have to bring back all of those ancient practices, but I'm saying, you know, the idea that the most important measure of your life was the life of Christ has some valuable meaning to us. And it matters how you keep track of your time, that it's used for God's purpose. Time is more than just productivity. God, in his calendar, back for ancient Israel, built, out, built in rest. We think of rest as doing nothing. God thought it was apparently important that Israel keep a day of rest every week to remember his rest in the creation of the universe. You, know, you see the significance of it? He wanted you to think about the things he did as you lived your life. And so a week couldn't go by in ancient Israel without one day of that week remembering that God created the world and on the seventh day he rested. That you remembered that every week. It had significance. We're going to have to think about time better, but I've got to move on. What about marriage? I do a lot of premarital counseling, and the modern person thinks of marriage as a contract. A social contract or even an economic construct uh, it gives you a nice tax break if you do it right. Um, it affects how you set up your bank accounts. Um, there's penalties like a good contract. If you break it, there's penalties involved, right? So we better make sure we structure that contract correctly. Uh, and that's kind of how we think of marriage is, is it some kind of contract you enter into like a business. Um, and it's subject to the secular state as a right. Marriage in modern culture, and this has become painfully obvious to us recently, uh, is under the rule and authority of the state. It's something the state takes care of. As that, it's viewed as a right. Okay? Let me say something wildly controversial for just a moment here. Okay? Um, marriage is not a right. But if it were, our current Supreme Court then made a really good decision. Familiar with the Oberfell decision? They decided that state laws and federal laws outlawing or banning same-sex marriages were unconstitutional. Okay? In that decision, Anthony Kennedy said the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. The petitioners in these cases... Seek to find that liberty by marrying someone of the same. What did Kennedy say there? He said, if marriage is a right that the government protects for citizens, then the government has to protect that right for everybody, whether they're marrying the same sex or different sexes. My controversial statement is, if that's how you view marriage, that's true. If marriage is just another right, 
You got the right to freedom of press and freedom of assembly, and you got the right to get married. Well, then everybody ought to have it, right? Isn't that the way the Constitution's set up? My suggestion is that's not what marriage is, and it's never been what marriage is. And that the mistake wasn't in that Supreme Court decision, it was somewhere much further back when we changed the way we thought of marriage as becoming something that belonged to the secular state and not, rather, a work of God. Marriage is a work of God, and it was from the beginning. Before there was a state, there was a marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And it was God who ordained it and officiated it, if you will. It's something that God has created and blessed us with. It's not a right. It is a blessing. Those are two very different things. Nobody owes me a blessing. But I'm going to get my rights. See the difference? Marriage is a blessing. Something to be humbly received in whatever way God has designated it. That's very different. Marriage is a sacred mystery of the church. The Apostle Paul said that marriage is something that exists not as a function of the state. He never imagined that Rome was marrying people. He says marriage tells us about the church. The the Greek word there for mystery is mysterion. How about that? And the Latin word that was translated in the Old Vulgate was sacramentum. It's a sacrament of the church. It is a function of the church for people to be married. That it's something the church blesses and organizes and orchestrates. And in the, in the ancient world, this is certainly the way it was. Even up till colonial times, um, how did a person get married? Well, some preacher wrote it in the front of your family Bible. I mean, that was the wedding ceremony. The state didn't start licensing it until two events happened in the 1800s, which made the United States government decide maybe we need to get into the wedding business. Uh, one was fascinating and one was terrible. Um, one was interracial marriages. Some states felt like, oh, we better stop with that. And so they put licenses on it so they could control that. So racism, that's a great way to start something, right? Anything that starts with racism, probably a bad idea. The other one uh, was polygamy, oddly enough. Mormons were taking on more than one wives, and states said, well, that's not right. So we'll regulate it. We'll issue marital licenses and regulate it. But my point is, up until that point, the state had nothing to do with it. When Henry VIII wanted to get an annulment so he could get another marriage, he was the king of England, and he couldn't give it to himself. He needed the pope's permission. And so he started his own church and made himself the head and did it anyway, but he had to have a church to do it. See my point? Marriage has always been a function of the church. And so if you dig into ancient marriage ceremonies, one of my favorite little books that Christians ought to dig through once in a while is, uh, it says BCP up there, the Book of Common Prayer. And it's an old book, Anglican hymns and songs and prayers and ceremonies, and some of it's strange because we're not Anglican, but it records some of the ancient ways of doing marriages. Can I just read, to, I use this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer when I do weddings because I think it's a beautiful reminder of what marriage used to mean to us. Eternal God, creator and preserver of all life, author of salvation and giver of all grace, look with favor upon the world you have made and for which your son gave his life, and especially upon this man and this woman, whom you make one flesh in holy matrimony. Amen. Gave them wisdom and devotion in the ordering of their common life, that each may be to the other a strength in need, a counselor in perplexity, a comfort in sorrow, and a companion in joy. Amen. 
Grant that their wills may be so knit together in your will and their spirits in your spirit, that they may grow in love and peace with you and one another all the days of their life. Amen. Give them grace when they hurt each other to recognize and acknowledge their fault and to seek each other's forgiveness and yours. Amen. Make their life together a sign of Christ's love to this sinful and broken world. That unity may overcome estrangement, forgiveness heal guilt, and joy conquer despair. Amen. Bestow on them, if it is your will, the gift and heritage of children, and the grace to bring them up to know you, to love you, and to serve you. Amen. Give them such fulfillment of their mutual affection that they may reach out in love and concern for others. Amen. Grant that all married persons who have witnessed these vows may find their lives strengthened and their loyalties confirmed. Amen. Grant that the bonds of our common humanity, by which all your children are united one to another and the living to the dead, one to another, may be so transformed by your grace that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven, where, O Father, with your Son and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign in perfect unity now and forever. Amen. Now, that's a wedding prayer. That's the way it's done, folks. <laughs> right? That's like everything you needed to know about marriage in the course of the prayer. And everything that we forgot about marriage. It's a sign of the love of Christ to the culture. It was made to produce children as a heritage whenever possible. And to promote reconciliation between man and woman. I mean, all the things we want to say about the gospel. Built into the prayer. That every old Anglican priest read at every wedding. Right? We've outsourced all that. We've secularized it. And we've forgotten the significance of what marriage is and how it orders our culture. We're going to have to reassert that somehow. And I think churches are going to be essential to reclaiming that. I'm not saying you've got to get married in a church. Okay? If you want to go out in the park, that's up to you, whatever. But I am saying that we want our children that grow up in churches to think about marriages as something that involves their church. That it's something that is connected to the life of the church. Which brings us to my final point. Something else that's connected to the life of the church that we've forgotten. Death. Well, that's a fun topic to end on. How about that? Death. Yeah, sure enough. How do modern people view death? Uh, it's very clinical. Okay? That's, a, that's a problem for medical professionals. We have special words for people to die in. It's distant. right? You're going to die over there, and I'm going to live my normal life over here. We're going to bury you over there, and I'm going to live my life over here. And it's taboo. We don't really like to talk about death. I want Scott next week to say, I'm going to start a 13-week series on death. <laughs> and watch the room clear out, right? We don't want to talk about death. It's uncomfortable for the modern person because the modern person doesn't have any plans for what happens afterward. So there's no, no thought of what to say about death. We don't know what to do with it. It's prolonged as long as possible. I mean, you look at what does medical science exist to do today? To keep you alive in whatever state as long as possible. And again, I, I love and cherish life. Don't get me wrong. But I do worry sometimes that we're living longer, but maybe not better. That we've decided avoiding the grave is the ultimate concern. And ancient people didn't think that way. 
it culminates in either excessive celebration or unchecked despondency. If you look at modern funerals, I am, I am a snob about weddings and funerals, so I'm going to rant in just a minute here. Because modern people don't know what marriage and death is about, they don't know how to do weddings and funerals. As a minister, I go to a lot of these, okay? So I have some opinions. So in my community of Beggs, Oklahoma, down south of Tulsa, there was a shooting in November. Uh, mother took the life of two of her children, high school-aged children. Terrible tragedy. And the funeral was there in, on the school grounds in the big gymnasium where everyone could be present. I mean, it was a huge event, community event. I was just there. I, mean, I wasn't part of the funeral. Um, and let me just say, before it sounds like I'm condescending, when people grieve, listen, they can grieve however they need to grieve. I'm not going to judge people during their funeral. Except, because we don't know anything about death, and because we have separated our lives from church altogether, when people die, we don't know what to do. We don't have a sacred selection of hymnals in our minds to say, these are the songs that will heal the wounds of grief in my heart. And so we go down to the chapel and we talk to the funeral home director, right? a funeral home director, even listen to that, right? It's not a function of the church, it's a business, a guy does it, it gets taken care of, well and good. And we arrange it and they say, what songs do you want to hear? And we pick out some songs. So I'm sitting there in this gymnasium, people are grieving, and what's the first song that comes over? Amazing grace, nearer my God to thee. Oh no. When I drink tequila. Where am I right now? What is going on? And I look, I pull out the form and I look at the song list. And I'm thinking, again, these are songs that apparently meant something to this family, and I understand. But I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying, isn't it sad that we don't know what to say at a funeral? I don't know. What's on the radio? Play that. The first funeral I ever did, terrible tragedy. Young man, 20-something years old, died of homeless AIDS, drug addiction. Uh, The family has no connection to the church except a family member was one of my members. And he said, could you do this for us? I said, yeah, sure. So I did the funeral. No idea what I was doing. This is a great first funeral, Scott. This is how you want to start off your career in ministry. Um, And my dad is an elder at this church. And he says, hey, Ben, are they getting the a cappella version of the songs for the church? And I said, listen, I'm just trying to get the edited version of the songs they requested. First song in their list is Only God Knows Why by Kid Rock. And I said, ah, it's not from our hymnal, I promise. It is definitely something that was... My point is, they didn't know, you know, what do you do at a funeral? Death is going to happen. Okay? Churches help us prepare for that. And we know how to behave... And we know what a funeral is about. Uh, Philippe Ireyes uh, has written a book called uh, Modernity and Death, I think is the name of it. But it's how modern people view death. And he makes the comment, in the modern period, death was furtively pushed out of the world of familiar things. Death has become unnameable. We don't know what to do with it. Instead, in scripture, death is a sacred moment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. It's an appointment. It's something we're going to keep. We're all going to pass through it. To make sure we knew we'd all pass through it, Jesus himself passed through it. Didn't avoid it. It was a doorway that he went through as well. Death is long prepared for. 
So Paul could write to his young protege Timothy and said, I am ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I've run the race, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course. Right? This is not a person in despondence and in, in, in deep despair. This is a man who says, yep, I know what's, where we're headed. And he has a confidence. Does that mean he's excited about dying? I'm going to say no. I don't think he's in a hurry to get there, but he has prepared for it. Does that make sense? See the difference in that? We also in the New Testament think of the dead as not winking out of existence. See, if the world is a terrible soulless place of atoms and molecules in motion, the dead die and they're just lost to us forever. Uh, in Scripture, the, the dead stay with us. The Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 gives the long list of all the great heroes of the faith, and Abraham and Isaac and Moses, and it says, and we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And the church through the years took that very literally. Where did they used to bury you? In the front yard of the church, right? That's, I mean, in, in a world that took uh, christening of babies very seriously, they, when you were born, you were christened there. When you got married, you went to church. And when you died, they stuck you out front, right? Somebody come by and said, Ben, still go to church here? Yeah, he's right out there, <laughs> right? I mean, you lived your life in around the church. They could take you communion if you wanted. Right? I mean, you lived your life in and around the church. And you didn't forget the dead. You walked by them every Sunday morning. Only instead of sitting on the pew next to you, they were out front. That always stayed with you. And that's so different from the way we do it. And no wonder we're sad and lonely now. Because we've banished the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a view of death that is utterly Christian all the way through. And it's careful to say that death is an enemy. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? Death is a bad guy. We're not trying to romanticize death. I'm not in a hurry. Okay? It is an enemy. But it is a defeated enemy. The modern world views death at the bully at the end of the street who's going to take your lunch money on the way to school. Christianity views death as one more sacred appointment. An enemy that's already been unmanned and unhinged and defeated and loosed. As the expression Peter uses in Acts chapter 2. He loosed the pangs of death. Could not be beholden of it. And that is a different view of how we live our lives. So my suggestion to you today, if you want to reclaim culture, you, it starts with you, not going out there and saying, y'all better do better. It starts with you thinking of humans differently. Thinking of time differently. Thinking of our marriages differently. And thinking about dying differently. And reclaiming those things from the culture that doesn't know what to do with them anyway. And submitting them again to our Lord Jesus Christ. I think I'm out of time, Scott. So I'm going to stop, and then we'll try to give us some hope for the sermon later on.